the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, it's April Fool's Day. What is the next COVID culture war? And then we are thrilled to be joined by Lee Strobel, the author of Case for Christ and Case for Miracles. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really thrilled to have you with us today on April the 1st. Not only is it April Fool's Day, but it's just April the 1st. It's opening day for baseball. It is all of that stuff. Spring is in the air, and it's 38 degrees here in Chicago. How about that? But not only is it 38 degrees, but it's supposed to be uh, 75 degrees this weekend. Go figure. That is just Chicago in the springtime. So glad to have you with us today. If you've been with the show at all, you know I'm a bit obsessed with Major League Baseball starting, and I'm a huge New York Mets fan, and we finally signed Francisco Lindor last night, uh, Francisco Lindor being our new star shortstop, to a 10-year, $341 million contract. No small amount of money. Uh, but I was all psyched to watch the Mets tonight at 6 o'clock. You know, watch the Cubs a little bit today. Mets come on tonight, DVR it, be able to watch it when I get home. And then they're playing the Nationals, and the Nationals have some COVID issues. So the Mets are not going to be able to play. Uh, so that is the COVID world that we live in. When I first read that, I was like, be an April Fool's joke. And it was not. Later on today, we're going to end the show talking about some of the most famous April Fool's pranks of all time. Uh, but with that in mind, I read an article that I wonder what you think of. It says this, uh, for the second year in a row, Google cancels April Fool's. Uh, for the second year in a row, Business Insider has obtained an, eter- an internal, I said eternal, you can tell that I'm a pastor, has obtained an internal email stating that Google will not create a series of elaborate and occasionally entertaining April Fool's pranks. Uh, for this year, Google confirmed the memo to Business Insider. It's the second year in a row. Uh, a little update they gave added information in 2020. They said we made a decision to pause our longstanding Google tradition of celebrating April Fool's Day out of respect for all of those fighting COVID-19. With much of the world still grappling with serious challenges, we will again pause the jokes for April Fool's Day in 2021, reads a statement. Uh, so I, I don't know. They can do whatever they want. I got to be honest about what my first inclination was when I read that. Isn't this exactly when we need April Fool's jokes and a humor and laughs? Like, I understand that it it has been such a heavy, heavy time that we are facing culturally. But isn't that an even greater reason for laughs and for jokes? Maybe you think I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being insensitive because it feels to me like everything this year has been so heavy and so dark and so uh, just Groundhog Day-ish that that a day like April Fool's Day could really be an opportunity for us uh, to laugh and to joke. But Google can do whatever they want. I'm not suggesting that they're doing something wrong. But man, 
every now and then with all that's going on, I like, I feel like I need to watch a comedy and I need to just laugh sometimes. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, it's an old cheesy saying for a reason. Sometimes laughter is the best medicine. And so, uh, I don't know. I found myself feeling that way when I read it. Like, oh, feels like the right time to have April Fool's jokes. But anyway, that is obviously their call. Uh, this is also uh, in the midst of the pandemic. People are starting to get not just starting more and more people are getting vaccinated. I shared on the show the other day that I was able to obtain my first vaccination because they opened it. I don't know if it was one B two or one C. Well, I don't even know what it was, but. Uh, they opened it for media as well as uh, for uh, pastors, for religious leaders. And so I, I could double dip. Uh, and I finally, I don't know if you've tried to find a uh, a vaccine, some of you. It was really hard. And in fact, I was signed up last week. I was like, I told my wife, I just want to register. Uh, I just want to get it before it opens up for everybody on April 12th, because I think it's just going to be crazy then. And uh, I, I actually was signed up and all prepared last week to drive all the way down to Springfield, like almost three hours. I was like, I'm just going to go get it. Uh, and then but then uh, a day before I was able to find an appointment at a Walgreens uh, downtown Chicago It was like 45 minutes from my house. And so I was able to do that on Tuesday morning. And then we'll get the second shot here in two weeks. I understand some of you are very anti-vaccine, uh, you know, to each their own. I understand that. Uh, but for me, I thought to myself, you know what? If this is going to bring back some normalcy, uh, I'm all for it. And uh, But the question becomes, what now with the vaccine? As things start opening up, as some people are vaccinated, some people are not. Uh, and I saw this on the Today Show as well this morning about airlines. But it says this, America's next COVID-19 culture war is here. America's next COVID-19 culture war is here. It says growing numbers of businesses, hospitality industries, and even sports teams are considering requiring proof of vaccination for customers once the world begins to open up. For both patrons and staff, such a system might offer peace of mind and could stop a cruise voyage around the Caribbean, for example, for turning into a floating super spreader. Countries where COVID-19 rates are low might soon start demanding inoculation information before they let tourists in. It's not that different. It's not that different. Again, this is a CNN saying from parents showing proof of vaccination. Uh, although everyone, uh, they say everyone's favorite conspiracy theorist, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a member of Congress from Georgia, branded vaccine passports as, quote, Biden's mark of the beast. And fascism or communism or whatever you want to call it. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also seized on the idea, on the idea with the GOP base. He says it's completely unacceptable for either the government or the private sector to impose upon you the requirement that you show proof of vaccine to just simply be able to participate in normal society. For the record, President Biden is not actually planning to mandate passports, uh, vaccine passports. Uh, or to set up a central vaccine database. The White House says it's trying to work with companies to set standards. And so he basically said he's going to leave it up to this, to, to private companies. But the, the article at CNN ends this way. Nevertheless, it is eth an ethical minefield. Should businesses bar people who are not vaccinated? Can employers make vaccines a condition for accepting a new job? Certainly vaccines should be available to anyone who wants one, but such before such filtering systems are introduced. 
But equally, is it fair for an American who endangers others by refusing vaccination to get the same benefits as others? Uh, rent to quote politicians stirring fear and anger about the issue are not doing much to help. So they pose the question there. And I wonder what you think. Should this be okay? Should businesses bar people for not being vaccinated? Is this okay? I'm going to uh, tell you what I think. I think it's, uh, I do not think that this is okay. I'd, I would be against, especially doing this on a federal level, but even private companies saying you have to show proof of vaccination. I, I don't, I, I think that kind of f- flies in the face of a lot of what we do. Uh, and so I would be against that, but maybe you feel differently than me because uh, I think people on both sides uh, of this issue feel very differently. Um, and, you know, is it fair, they say, for someone who's endangering others? I, 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 this feels like a huge slippery slope to me that I would feel very uncomfortable with us societally going down. Uh, but maybe you disagree with me. What do you think of the idea of COVID passports? I would love to hear what you have to think. Do that at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined for two segments by Lee Strobel, author of over 40 books. The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles, has his own movie about him called The Case for Christ. Uh, We're going to talk about all sorts of things. Easter, we're going to talk about apologetics. Maybe we'll even talk about Chicago pizza as Lee is from the area. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really excited to have you with us today. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the president of the Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. Also the author of over 40 books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles. Uh, That is our friend Lee Strobel. Lee, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I, I sure love any opportunity to talk to the folks in Chicago. Oh, yeah. And so I actually wanted to start there. Let's start a little lighthearted. You're from the Chicagoland area. Today right. is opening day on, on the oh. baseball side of things. Cubs or White Sox? Lee Strobel is a fan of which team? Well, I have to be a Cubs fan. And the reason is when I was a toddler, my parents brought me to a banquet where the new rookie shortstop for the Cubs, Ernie Banks, was wow. And I fell down behind his chair and he put me in his lap. And at the end, he kissed me on the cheek. Oh, what a great story. Yes, that will make me a Cubs fan. (laughs) So I've got to be a Cubs fan. (laughs) Uh, Okay, one more for for all those people who debate this. They want to know what Lee Strobel thinks. Favorite kind of Chicago pizza? You know, I like Eduardo's, but the closest thing to that is uh, Giordano's. Yes, I I think that's where I would vote as well. We're we're Uh, certainly really glad to have you, Lee. Uh, so I want to start by asking you about something you do. I follow you on Twitter, as do many yeah. people. I would encourage people to follow Lee Strobel on Twitter. Uh, you do something that has always fascinated me. You do a lot of traveling. And when you're in an airport, you will often tweet, hey, I'm at this gate of this airport. Come find me and let's talk about Jesus or let's yeah. talk about skeptics. Uh, a, do people take you up on that? And maybe do you have a story or two of something that's come from one of those Twitter invitations? You know what? They they do take me up on it. I remember I was in uh, Texas somewhere, I think Houston, and I tweeted that. And within 20 seconds, I had a tap on my shoulder. And, <laughs> and it was a guy who said, hey, I saw your tweet. And I bought him breakfast. We had a great conversation. And then I was in uh, Denver Airport uh, sitting at, at a restaurant. 
and uh, tweeted out. And a guy came up and he said, you know, my plane's about to take off. I just wanted to say hi. And I said, where do you live? He said, Des Moines. I said, I'm going to be in Des Moines in about a week for a conference. And I invited <laughs> him to the conference. He came to the conference and we got to hang out together. So, yeah, so I do get some response. Uh, it always fascinates me every time you do that. I'm like, I wish I was in that <laughs> and I could hear about it right now. And so it, that's really cool. Uh, as we said, Lee has written many books, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles. Uh, the Case for Christ has been made in 2017 into a movie that is right now streaming on pureflix.com. That's pureflix. And you were telling us people could go there and stream it for free right now as kind of a trial. Yeah. Uh, so we'd encourage people to go to pureflix.com. I wanted to ask you, what's it like to have a movie made about your own journey? What's it like to watch that? How involved were you in the process? And maybe what is, uh, what is some fruit that's come from this movie? Well, uh, it's a little scary. It's a little frightening. It's a little embarrassing um, because it tells the bad as well as the good. And um, but we were very involved. Um, we um, I got to choose a screenwriter who is Brian Bird, a good mm. friend of mine who's written 17 movies. And uh, he met with Leslie and I for many, many, many hours to really get the inside story of our life and marriage. And so the movie is is highly accurate. It's about 85% accurate, which for a made based on true story movie, that's really, really high. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to do some time shifting and you have to do some um, composite characters to make it fit into a 90 minute movie. But uh, it's it's very accurate. Um, and God has used it. It was in movie theaters all around the world. Um, a, a church in New Zealand rented a movie theater, showed it and 22 people came to faith right there. Oh, so um, God's used it. The gospel is in the movie. And um, I'd encourage people, go go to pureflix.com, sign up for free for their seven-day trial, and watch it over the Easter uh, weekend. Yeah, it's a great time to watch it for sure. Uh, and I'd, I'd encourage other people, you know, tell your family, tell your friends about it again. That's at pureflix, pureflix.com, F-L-I-X. Uh, so you've had lots of books. People recognize you, a movie. Uh, I want to ask you particularly about the idea, something we've talked a lot about on this show is Christian celebrity culture and the good and the bad of it. Uh, you know, you may not want to talk in these terms, but you're a person people know, you kind of a Christian celebrity. Uh, how do you avoid the trappings of it? So what's just your take on celebrity, Christian celebrity culture, and how do you maybe protect yourself? Uh, it's an uncomfortable phenomenon. Um, yeah to be walking through an airport and have someone say, Hey, I recognize your voice. I heard you talking <laughs> and I recognize your voice. Um, so it's uncomfortable. I, I think um, we have to guard against, um, uh, you know, letting it go to our heads at all. I, I always travel for instance, with my wife with me. And so mm. uh, she keeps me with my feet on the ground. She, <laughs> she, she does not let me get a big head. Yes. Um, and uh, by the way, she grew up in Chicago area. She went to oh, Friend High School out in Palatine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. We, we met when we were 14 and, wow. um, and got married. Uh, we were so young when we got married that we couldn't drink champagne at our wedding. We had milk in our champagne glasses. Ah. <laughs> That's true. That's, That's true. Wild. So wait, you guys met when you were 14? When did yeah. you start dating? Like, when did you? Well, uh, that... Right away, uh, we used to wow. take the we used to take the train downtown from the suburbs and uh, walk around downtown Chicago. And then I was twenty when we got married. She was nineteen. 
What a fascinating story all these <laughs> years later. Yeah. Uh, so we're coming up on Easter. As we said, you have many well, well-known books, Case for Christ, Case for Miracles, Case for Faith. Uh, at the heart of the Easter message is the resurrection. Uh, yeah. You know, Paul basically says, without the resurrection, we're fools. Right. Uh, and so I would ask you this question. Let's just ask it this way. How would you make the case to a skeptic for the validity of the resurrection? I'd use four words to begin with the letter E. Um uh, execution. How do we know Jesus was dead? There's no dispute virtually among scholars on that topic. Even the atheist historian, Gerd Ludemann, says it's indisputable hmm. that Jesus was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says Jesus was dead. Secondly, early, we have early accounts of the resurrection that come um, within months of the death of Jesus. We have an account of his resurrection, including named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses. That, that dates back to within months of his death. So too early to be a legend. Third, we have an empty tomb that even the opponents of Jesus admitted was empty. And then finally, uh, we have eyewitnesses. You know, most of the facts that we know in the ancient world, we know from one or maybe two sources. And yet for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient mm -hmm. sources inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That's an avalanche of historical yeah. data. Absolutely. How would you answer the Christ follower who's like, you know what, does it really matter if it's historical? I just kind of quoted Paul's verse, Paul's words there. But yeah, how, how would you answer maybe the person who's who, you know, they follow Jesus, but they say, I don't know if it really matters if it really happened. You know, it matters because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. At one point, he got up and he said, I and the father are one. And the Greek word for one there is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying I and the father are the same person. He was saying I and the father are the same thing or one mm -hmm. in nature, one in essence. So, and, and the audience understood that he was claiming to be God. So uh, I could claim to be God. You could claim to be God. Anybody <laughs> yeah. can make that claim. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, then that's pretty good evidence he was telling the truth. That's a great word. We're thrilled to be joined by Lee Strobel, as we said, author of over 40 books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for Miracles, The Case for Faith. And uh, Lee, we were talking off air about your your book, The Case for Miracles. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love to know why did you write that book? Because a lot of people are like, OK, maybe miracles happen, maybe not. And And do we actually have documented miracles or are they just things that we have to just, you know, kind of choose to believe? Yeah, well, you know, um, it was a miracle, uh, that is the resurrection of Jesus that brought mm -hmm. me from atheism to faith, because I believe the historical evidence for that is so strong. But even, you know, I tend to be a skeptic by nature. You know, my background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine um, what kind of a skeptic I am. And I wondered, is God still in the miracle business today? Is he still yeah. really doing miracles? So I took two years and I investigated the supernatural. And the result is my new book, The Case for Miracles. And my conclusion is, number one, yes, God is still in the miracle business. Number two, uh, miracles happen a lot more frequently than people think. And number mm. three, um, we have better documented miracles than people suppose. And you asked about documentation. Um, it's interesting that uh, in recent years, we've had secular, peer-reviewed, scientific medical journals carrying reports that uh, point toward the validity of miracles. Uh, mm. I'll give you one example, and this was published in a secular, peer-reviewed, scientific journal. Um, a PhD from Harvard uh, heard that there was a cluster of miracles in Mozambique, so she sent a team of researchers there. 
Uh, they went into the remote villages and said, bring us all your deaf and blind. So they did, and they tested them scientifically. How well could they see? How mm -hmm. well could they hear? Then immediately after that, they were prayed for in the name of Jesus. Immediately after that, they were scientifically tested again. Is there any wow. change in their vision or in their hearing? Guess what? Virtually every case had improvement. In fact, the average, the overall um, improvement in visual acuity was over tenfold. Wow. And in fact, there was a woman named Martine who, when they tested her initially, could not hear the equivalent of a jackhammer next to her. After prayer in the name of Jesus, she can now hear normal conversations. And so this team was so flabbergasted, they said, we have to see if we can replicate this. So they went to another place where there have been clusters of miracles in Brazil, did the same experiment and got the same results. This is a valid scientific study that has been published in a secular peer-reviewed scientific medical journal, the Southern Medical Journal. Um, and I, I went to Indiana University where this PhD from Harvard is a professor and said, what do you make of all this? And she said, something is going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, she couldn't, she couldn't conclude scientifically it was a miracle, but boy, you add up one and one and it sure looks like the answer is two. Yeah, that's fascinating. You also have another book coming out on September the 14th, the case for heaven. Yeah. Uh, again, why did you choose to write about heaven and, and how, why is this a particularly important book considering the pandemic we've been in and this to the struggle of the last year? Yeah, you know, um, what prompted me to write it was about 10 years ago, I almost died. Wow. Um, my wife found me unconscious. Uh, when I woke up in the emergency room, the doctor said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And I had a rare condition called uh, hyponatremia, you know, which was a precipitous drop in my blood sodium level. Mm. And I was on the edge of death for several days. Um, by God's grace, I recovered. And um, But, you know, as a Christian, of course, I believe there's an afterlife. Of course, I believe in heaven and right. hell. But how do I know? How do I know? So, again, I tend to be a skeptic. So I, I took um, almost two years to investigate the, the question of, is there any good evidence for the afterlife? Hmm. And um, that's the new book that will come out on September the 14th, The Case for Heaven. And uh, I believe there is good uh, case uh, case to be made from the areas of neuroscience, from near-death experience, from philosophy and so forth. Um, and uh, so I talk about that. I talk about reincarnation. I talk about heaven. I talk about hell. And um, um, I think it's ever more relevant today because of COVID. You know, my wife yeah. and I were having lunch uh, at a restaurant uh, just a couple weeks ago, and I got into a spiritual conversation with the waitress. And all of a sudden she started to cry and she said, Oh, I'm sorry. She said, I almost didn't come into work today. Um, we just lost a family member to COVID. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking here she is. She's probably 18 years old. This is probably the first person close to her who has died. She's thinking about the fragility of life. She's mm -hmm. thinking about questions like, is there an afterlife or is this world all there is? And I think, you know, COVID has brought that to people's consciousness. My own brother died of COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, thanks. About a year ago. And mm. and uh, so this is really razor for a lot of people. And, and um, I think it's good that we can have confidence that, um, you know, as we go back to talking about Easter, the fact that, that Jesus has overcome the grave means mm -hmm. that those who follow him will overcome the grave as well someday as well. 
Yeah, it's a good word. Again, that book comes out September the 14th. It's called The Case for Heaven. Hey, uh, I want to get your take on a study that we read about last week or two weeks ago. I think it was Barna, but I could get that mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, that said something to this effect. I was doing this off the top of my head, but it said something to the effect of 47% of millennials say it's quote unquote wrong to try to convert another person. Mm. Uh, and and I, I wanted to just get your thought on that. What Why is that? Uh, what is just your reaction to that? And, and why is that such a problematic stat? I think that just reflects poor teaching in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, central to the Christian mission is to tell people the truth about Jesus, the truth about the fact that there is a, a life beyond this one and that you can know Jesus personally in this world and you can spend eternity with him forever. Uh, that's the most important news on the planet. Mm-hmm. Why would we want to keep that from people? Wouldn't we want to share that to people? If I had the cure for COVID um, <laughs> and, and all you got to do is eat you know, cabbage or whatever, uh, I would sure want to tell people, go out and yes. eat some cabbage. It'll be <laughs> fine. Um, I wouldn't want to hold that back. And, uh, you know, we, we do have the cure for death um, and, and it is Jesus Christ. And so um, um, I, I think it's just natural that we would we would want to communicate that with others. Yeah, uh, Lee, it's been so good to have you on. As we move into Easter, uh, let's pretend you were talking to that waitress or you were talking (laughs) to somebody on an airplane or something, and they kind of asked you, what's the big deal about Easter? And you had Mm. kind of a short amount of time to give give them, this is the hope of Easter. This is why Easter is so important. What would you say to that person? I'd say three things real quickly. Number one, um, uh, the fact that and Jesus returned from the dead proves that he's the son of God. Therefore, his teachings are not just good suggestions, but they are coming from God himself. So we ought to be following those teachings. Uh, number two, uh, the fact that he was resurrected means that he's alive today. You can interact with him. You can get to know him. You can experience him personally today. And then number three, the fact that he overcame the grave means that we will overcome the grave someday as well. So yeah. um, he, uh, who doesn't want to do that? Uh, You know, so those are three implications of Easter that I think are clear and compelling. Yeah. And uh, as we close up, what are you doing this Easter? Are you speaking? Is it just a family day? What what will you be doing on Easter Sunday? I'm going to do something really unusual. I'm going to do a huge outdoor uh, Easter service in Philadelphia. Wow. Yeah. So that's going to be awesome. At Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, which is in Philadelphia, we're going to do a live 11 a.m. Eastern time, a live outdoor Easter service. Oh, that's great. Well, Lee Strobel, again, president of the Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University, author of many books, including the one coming out September the 14th, The Case for Heaven. Also, we would encourage you to go to pureflix.com and check out The Case for Christ uh, right there. It's streaming and you can even watch it for free at pureflix.com. You can find Lee on Twitter. As I told you, he is a great follow at Lee Strobel. Lee, this was absolutely our pleasure. Have a great Easter. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a cold but sunny Thursday afternoon. Uh, As I've said, I'm a lead pastor of a church called Four Corners Community Church uh, in Darien. Uh, That is just south of Downers Grove, kind of the uh, southwest 
uh, suburbs of Chicago. If you don't have a church to be at this week, we would love to have you at either 9 or 1030. Uh, you can find us at fccc.church. But uh, a lot of the things that I think about and therefore kind of put on the show have to do with uh, what's it like to be a pastor. And and because I really am a believer that a lot of the things that they write to pastors can be written to any of us, uh, whether you're a pastor, you're a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, a banker, whatever it is that you are. Uh, and so this was written by Wesley Hill at Christianity Today. And it's entitled this, Pastor, you have one job. Uh, and then it says, ministry is first and foremost about being a caretaker of a message. Let me just read a little bit of what Wesley Hill has to write here. It says, designer Frank Chimero has a recommendation for artists. Create text playlists akin to Spotify song lineups, but for favorite snippets of writing. Poems you want to revisit, bits of advice or wisdom you need to be regularly reminded of, stories you know will kickstart your creativity on days when you need inspiration, and so on. It's almost a pep talk in text form, Chimera explains. I visit it when I'm down, when I'm lazy, when I'm feeling the inertia take over. This idea isn't original to Chimera. Older generations uh, would have called their text playlist commonplace books, revisiting memorable text. Recently, he goes on to say, I've begun compiling a text playlist for pastoral ministry. I was ordained last September, and now, in addition to teaching at a theological seminary, I work part-time at my local church. As I prepare sermons, uh, visit parishioners in the hospital, lead Bible studies, and administer communion, I find myself returning to some basic questions, he writes. What is the main thing I'm called to do? What is pastoral care, really? What does it mean to be a minister of the good news? In the months leading up to my ordination, as I prayed and one pondered what I was about to embark on, I started collecting quotations that seemed to articulate with unique and striking clarity the answer to these questions. So that's kind of how he sets it up. What is the point? What is it all about, particularly as he became a pastor? Uh, and he goes on to say this. Consider this one from the late Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen. When Jensen wrote uh, the following words, he was teaching future pastors at a seminary. He said, ordination is God's permission to speak and act for that gospel which invented the church and is not invented by the church. To speak and act for the gospel over against the community as a whole, if, indeed, if need be in defiance of the community as a whole. From the minister's side, ordination is a sort of a liberating oath to preach and teach the gospel in accord, in accord with nothing but the gospel. The church rightly worries also about how much truth the world can stand or about what will be best motivate folks to the many works that need doing in the world or about how not to offend the marginal with too much gospel. But ordination, he writes, is permission to certain persons to worry in the opposite direction. He goes on to say, many readers have remarked over the year about Jensen's penchant for writing arresting sentences. Where it might seem natural to think of our work as a form of public service in which we're accountable to our customers, in this case, our congregants, Jensen says that being a pastor is more like a hall pass from God. We're authorized to focus on one task above all others and to refuse uh, other directives and expectations, even those from our most insistent per, uh, parishioners. Pastoral ministry, here's his money line. 
pastoral ministry is first and foremost about being a caretaker of a message. We are free to be news agents for God, broadcasters of the same announcement that the women of the empty tomb were entrusted to deliver to the apostles on the first Easter Sunday morning. Here it is in three words. Jesus is risen. So that's what he's talking about. Wesley Hill says, ultimately, and we'll get back into what he has to say. It's a very long article. But Wesley Hill says uh, that ultimately, the role of the pastor is to proclaim with great boldness, clarity, and regularity that Jesus is risen, to proclaim he is risen. Uh, and, and that that from that, um, everything else flows, that we can get all caught up in the many different things that we as pastors think we're called to do, that we feel like we're called to do, but that in reality, first and foremost, it is to uh, hold up in front of our congregations that Jesus is risen, that the tomb is empty. I find this to be so important here at Easter, as that's what we're going to proclaim this Sunday. But it's not just this Sunday that we proclaim it. Instead, this is our message. He is risen. And that the Paul says to the Corinthians that because Jesus is risen, we now have victory, right? He asks those questions. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And, and the implication to those questions is it's not there. There is no victory for death. There is no sting. Why? Because because Jesus rose from the dead, we now have victory over sin and death. And that because we have victory over sin and death, Paul says that therefore uh, we can stand firm and not let anything move you. And pastors, if you're out there, but all of us, if you are, if you're kind of wobbling, if you're not standing firm, if you don't know what creates stability in our life, the answer is the empty tomb. It's ultimately the empty tomb. And that's what we need to be pointing people to, whether you're a pastor or a parishioner, it's what we need to point ourselves to. The empty tomb that he has risen. Wesley Hill ends this way. You do not need to have some elusive more, some expertise or skill set or secret formula to succeed in ministry. The spirit is sufficient. Christ is enough. You have everything you need. And that is why we ministers need Galatians on our playlist. When we pastors find ourselves wondering if we have what it takes to minister to the sick, the needy, the brokenhearted, the rebellious, the young, the old, the lost, or anyone else, the answer to our worry is we have Jesus. Jesus is what we need. He is all that we need going forward. And he closes this way. The American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson once criticized historical Christianity for how it dwells, quote, with noxious exaggeration about the person of Jesus. Hill says, I'd like to see us reclaim that slur as a goal. And as we set our sights there on Jesus and his gospel, I hope we experience uh, experience it as the sweet relief that it is. That's Wesley Hill at Christianity Today. I think just a really timely article, especially here around Easter, uh, that uh, he is risen. We have Jesus, and that's more than enough. And we as pastors and all of us, we have been entrusted with that message. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about something that NBC News' Lester Holt said that's getting a lot of attention. That's going to be next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
coming up this hour. An interesting quote from NBC News' Lester Holt. And then we're going to look at some of the greatest April Fool's pranks of all time. You're listening to The Common Good. friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today on a beautiful Thursday, brisk Thursday afternoon. It's almost Easter week tomorrow, or almost Easter, I should say. Tomorrow is Good Friday in which we remember the brutal death of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross uh, for you and for me. And, and I, my prayer is that you will have time to uh, slow down and uh, take time to reflect uh, upon that. And then uh, Sunday is coming where we get to uh, celebrate that he is risen and proclaim he is risen indeed. And that as he is risen, there is victory over the grave and we can uh, have that great hope in our lives. That can be the very foundation of our lives. And so it's Easter and we are excited uh, for that. So I uh, wanted to play a clip I read, I saw on Twitter from Lester Holt of NBC News. But before we do that, I do want to reflect. Uh, I don't want to spend, um, I'm sure there'll be much more time in future weeks as things get more and more definitive. But I don't know if you've been watching any of the um, the trial about uh, for uh, former officer Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd. That trial is difficult to watch. And it's bringing back a lot of like the imagery and the things we saw back in May and June. And I, I, it struck me today to watching. I was watching those clips and the people who were there and the trauma, uh, the traumatization that they have uh, they have dealt with is uh, is really sobering. To be honest with you, it's just it's just hard to think about the the nineteen or twenty year old young man who was the original one to call the police or call his uh, call his boss about the um, what he thought was a fake $20 bill. And that started everything or uh, saying on the stand yesterday that he regrets doing it. Like I did the right thing, but man, it's just so hard. It's a really hard thing to watch. And uh, I think it's important that we do watch it. And um, I don't know how this is going to all end, but uh, it brings us back to all that went on in the summer uh, and and wondering about where where we're going to be, what what's how's this trial uh, going to play out? I think is uh, is something really interesting to think about. Uh, well, uh, I said I wanted you to hear something from Lester Holt today. Lester Holt is uh, he is the nightly news anchor, right, for NBC News. Uh, and so let's play this. It's about a minute and a half long, uh, and then I want to reflect upon what Lester Holt says. The unprecedented attacks on the press in this period, I'm sure, will fill plenty of books and be studied in classrooms, maybe even here. But I have a few early observations I'll share about where this moment brings us and what we can learn. Number one is, I think it's become clearer that fairness is overrated. Well, before you run off and tweet that headline, let me explain a bit. The idea that we should always give two sides equal weight and merit does not reflect the world we find ourselves in. That the sun sets in the West is a fact. Any contrary view does not deserve our time or attention. Now, I know recent events assure that you won't have to look far to find more current and relevant examples. I think you get my point. Decisions to not give unsupported arguments equal time are not a dereliction of journalistic responsibility or some kind of agenda. In fact, it's just the opposite. 
Providing an open platform for misinformation, for anyone to come say whatever they want, especially when issues of public health and safety are at stake, can be quite dangerous. Our duty is to be fair to the truth. Holding those in power accountable is at the core of our function and responsibility. We need to hear our leaders' views, their policies and reasoning. It's really important. But we have to stand ready to push back and call out falsehoods. So the headline grabber right there, and Holt even acknowledged it, is that fairness is overrated. He said fairness is overrated and that the idea that we should always give two sides equal weight and merit does not reflect the world uh, we find ourselves in. And so I simultaneously understand where he's coming from and am troubled by what he said. Uh, So I would say I feel a little bit of both here. So first, uh, understanding what he said, uh, that it's not always about giving equal weight to both sides if one of the sides is just craziness, right? If one of the sides is just a blatant uh, lie or beyond that, dangerous. And that's what Lester Holt is getting at. Is it always the job of the news media to give equal time? Where, uh, where I'm troubled here is that, as we know, our, our news media, our uh, cable news media, uh, mainstream media, whatever, uh, doesn't, uh, is not neutral. And because they lack neutrality, it becomes very difficult then to give them the ability to be arbiters of, uh, what does, what, uh, what deserves merit? What doesn't deserve merit? What deserves weight? What is unfair and what is fair? What is, they become the arbiters of that which is true, uh, and that which is, um, they get to decide uh, what should be heard and what shouldn't. And that's really dangerous. I know uh, we're not so naive as to think that there is neutrality uh, in our news media, but you would like to think that there is a desire to kind of give both sides, even when the majority of people, say in the news media, disagree with that side. We know that generally speaking, our news media, mainstream media, tends to be uh, pretty left-leaning. And so therefore, uh, when somebody, say, brings up something that doesn't fit the narrative about what's going on with the pandemic, do they report on it? Let me give you an example. Uh, Some statistics came out the other day uh, that um, the state of Texas is actually doing really well with its COVID numbers, specifically since they lifted the mask mandate. And uh, a lot of people are really confused by that. You might remember when they lifted the mask mandate, um, President Biden called it a Neanderthal move. And all over the place on Twitter, on the news, on everywhere, it was just this is a death sentence for Texans. This is this and that. And I'm not suggesting that it was the right move or the wrong move, but the numbers are going well for them. And so the question is, I'm more concerned in this conversation is how does the news media report that? Do you give that in a fairness, to use Lester Holt's words, and merit? Do you just report it as news or do you editorialize and say, oh, there must be a different explanation? And is there something that they are trying to push? And so that's why it becomes difficult uh, when you get a Lester Holt saying uh, fairness is overrated and the idea that we should always have two sides be equal 
that does not reflect the world we live in. Uh, that's a slippery slope that I, I sometimes is legitimate, but man, that's a slippery slope. It also gets at why a lot of people do not trust the news media because they are going, well, look, he's admitting right there that maybe the things that they disagree with, they're not going to give equal weight to. And that then spawns uh, cable news and Twitter. I mean, just the other day, Twitter, again, around the pandemic, they flagged something from an epidemiologist uh, about COVID that they might disagree, people might disagree with. But I mean, this is a doctor giving his opinion, but it, it they they flagged it. And, and again, you want to know what are um, what are the criteria for Lester Holt saying this is these are the things we will give equal weight to. These are the things we will not give equal weight to. When I read that, I went, ah, that's a little scary. That's a little slippery slope ish. And it makes me uncomfortable. What do you think? Go to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram page at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to do an article from the Gospel Coalition. It says this, American culture is broken. Is theonomy the answer? We're going to define theonomy and then decide, is that the answer? That's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Andrew Walker, he's an associate professor of Christian ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also the author of a book called Liberty for All. Uh, He wrote at the Gospel Coalition, American Culture is Broken. Is Theonomy the answer? Theonomy, T-H-E-O-N-O-M-Y. You might be thinking, what is theonomy? Well, we are going to get to that in this article, but let's look at what he has to say. He says, have you noticed this vision of Christianity in the public square? That seems muscular, confident, even brashly triumphalist. It is tired of Christianity's never-ending losses in the culture war. It rightly criticizes the decadence, perversion, and irrational norms of secularism and understands that under the guise of neutrality, secularism has become the functional god of this age. The only way for cultural sanity to be restored is for Christians to truly grasp the lordship of Jesus Christ and unapologetically assert his authority over every part of life, even government. This vision may seem new if you're younger than 40, but it is not. What we're seeing is the rebirth of Christian reconstruction or its more applied form, theonomy. Uh, As David Gordon notes in his 1994 essay, Christian Reconstruction and Theonomy, overlap considerably yet bear distinction. Here's the distinction. Christian Reconstruction refers to the broader theological and cultural program of uniting culture more explicitly to Christian moral foundations. Theonomy, on the other hand, seeks to apply the civil law of the Mosaic Covenant to contemporary uh, civil government. Theonomists wish for civil government not only to take its directions from Christianity, but also craft specific law in the shadow of the Old Testament Israel. So Reconstruction refers to a broadly cultural movement. Theonomy refers to a particular hermeneutical approach. Because all theonomists are implicitly Reconstructionist, critiques of both Christian Reconstructionism and also theonomy will go hand in hand under the economy, under the category of theonomy. 
predominantly a movement within 70s and 80s Presbyterianism, theonomy significantly influenced broader conservative evangelicalism on such matters as political engagement and the rise of homeschooling. It championed strict biblical orthodoxy, limited government, close family relations, and free market economics. Uh, so he goes on to give some more of the background. He says, theonomy, which simply means God's law, is not necessarily one thing. Various strands and arguments comprise it, and proponents disagree on some matters. And to be clear, uh, anyone who believes in Christianity ought to believe God's law is the greatest law against everything el- against which everything else is measured. Moreover, everybody is living according to some ultimate authority. Theonomists are right to point out the inescapability of authority and to criticize the, quote, myth of neutrality that smuggles secular assumptions into government and law. Uh, there can be common cause with many theonomies protest. And so I find this to be really interesting. Uh, it says general equity theonomy believes all persons and institutions are subject to God's law generally. Uh, Rushdunian theonomy desires all civil legal systems to adhere to the Mosaic Covenant's judicial laws specifically. Uh, and so I'm wondering what you think about this. He says the hermeneutic used to make such an application assumes the abiding authority of the Mosaic law and would lead to executing people for a multitude of sins and crimes. He says there are serious cr- uh, criticisms of the movement, criticisms so severe that theonomy should be repudiated as an evangelical framework for understanding the mission of the church and the relationship between civil and sacred. In in sum, the error of theonomy is that its hermeneutic stretches beyond uh, the Bible's understanding of its own authority. From this mistaken hermeneutic comes serious distortions with drastic consequences for the church's role in fallen political orders. Theonomy is a facile hermeneutic that channels an eschatology of triumph. Historically undesirable, it instrumentalizes religion, blurs church-state relationships, and jeopardizes religious dissent. Uh, So he goes on. This is a long article, too, but uh, he says other problems relate to theological posture. Martin Luther expounded on the difference between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. The former is a theology of enthronement and triumph. Uh, the latter, a theology of suffering and loss. Theonomy is fundamentally a theology of glory. Uh, and so he goes on to say a lot in this article. But what do you think? Have you ever heard this term before? I wasn't really familiar with theonomy. Uh, he says, uh, what about standards of morality for society? How can society continue God's word receives the respect unless it receives the respect it does? Um, yeah, this idea of theonomy is really interesting. But uh, to say that we're going to build our society upon the Mosaic law uh, is problematic and it is not possible uh, because, A, the penal code of the Old Testament is uh, put into our time. Uh, that's going to be a tough sell. And, prob- and two, uh, the new covenant has come. And so there's, there's, some, there's some important distinctions here. He goes on to say at the end, in a well-intentioned effort to protect biblical sufficiency, theonomy stretches the concept beyond biblical recognition. It yields a grasp of scripture more focused on cause, uh, uh, more focused on things other than redemption. It would be right for a theonomist 
to read this essay and ask, but what if the nation on the whole experiences another awakening then produces a predominantly Christian nation? What then? The answer is not to enact a theonomic agenda. The answer to quote my denomination's confession is that quote, a free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference of civil power. Man, this is good. There's a lot to just take here. Uh, He goes on to say, the question we have to contend with, though, is how to understand the task of cultural apologetics when the Bible itself is rejected. How do we sum this up? Uh, You are probably like, enough already. I would sum it up this way. We do not live in a Christian nation and we do not live in a nation, uh, a culture that embraces uh, readily the words of Scripture. And that's not our goal. Our goal is to not form our, our goal is not to form our nation in the form of a big church or to form it uh, in the image of the Bible. It is instead to our broken culture with its brokenness to take the good news of the redemption of the gospel. And, and I think it's to say the Bible is sufficient. And so anyway, I found this interesting. The word theonomy is not something I've thought of very often. This was framed really well by Andrew Walker, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the ba- uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And we're hoping to have him on again sometime to talk a little bit more about that. But he goes, he closes by saying God's word is indeed all sufficient and the final authority against all counterfeits. We can all sign on to that, can't we? Uh, all of us who are Christ followers can sign on to that. Well, uh, we're excited to have you with us today. Coming up next, this article also from the Gospel Coalition, Failure is Succeeding at Things That Don't Matter. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm a beautiful Thursday afternoon. It's chilly, uh, but the skies are blue. Baseball has started, and here we go. Uh, well, I want to talk about this article, again, written by Rico Tice at the Gospel Coalition today. And it says this, failure is succeeding at things that don't matter. Failure is su- succeeding at things that don't matter. This is going to be good. He says, success is hearing well done from the only lips that matter. Failure is succeeding at things that don't finally matter at all. You probably knew this already, but how hard it is to live, he says. How hard it is to crave praise and affirmation from those around you. How hard it is not to measure success by the size of your house, the behavior of your kids, and perhaps most dangerous of all, he says to pastors here, the size or budget of your church. How does our Lord and Master define a successful ministry? By most measures, the Apostle Paul had failed by the time he wrote his second letter to Timothy. He was in prison. He was facing execution. His followers were deserting him. The Christian communities that he had founded were struggling, uh, riven with internal division and external persecution. Don't make the mistake of reading later history back into Paul's situation. He did not know. He's As he sat shivering in prison and writing to one of his few remaining friends that the churches he planted were the seeds of the fastest multiplying religious explosion. No, he didn't know. And as he contemplated death at at the hands of Roman executioners, that one day that empire would not just tolerate but promote Christianity. He didn't know any of that. 
and even by worldly measure, he had failed. His funeral would not be well attended. No obituaries would lionize him, and the location of his grave would go unrecorded. Yet Paul didn't see his life as unsuccessful. And so he called Timothy to live a life of eternal success, even if it was likely to look like a worldly failure. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, he urged the younger pastor in 2 Timothy 2.15. Like every day in a way that means you'll hear the divine well done. How was Timothy to do that? How do we do that? Two things, he says, we must get right. Two things we have to get right. But I love that backdrop. I never really thought of that. We read in hindsight Paul's life. Like, look what Paul birthed. He birthed this movement in the Gentile region. The church exploded. He was the greatest missionary. He planted all of these churches. But in the midst of it, Paul's churches were not impressive. Paul was arrested. You could make the case that Paul was a failure. If you only look at that slice, at at what was going on right then, that's really interesting to think about because how many of us get caught up in the moment and go, oh, I'm a failure. Like we don't think about the fruit that could be coming or the lives and things that God can do. And so Rico Tice here is going to say, there's just two things we have to get right. He says, first, get the word right. The one God approves is the one who correctly handles the word of truth. The Bible and the gospel it contains is the truth. That must be the lifelong anchor of our ministry, for it is the only anchor of a God-approved ministry. Get the word right. Get the gospel right, he says. And two, get your character right. The scriptures nowhere call us to teach truth without also commending us to live by it. First Timothy chapter 3 talks about elders and the characters of leadership. For those of us who are able to teach, it is easy to read a sentence like we must get the word right and we must get our character right and focus far more on the first clause than the second. But one of two is not a pass mark. A leader's character must never be an afterthought, nor can strength in teaching justify or make up for the weaknesses in conduct. A leader's character matters. And so he's talking to pastors here and he says, in the midst of all that's going on, here's what you got to get right. Get the word right and get your character right. And then you are a success. He says the key to a ministry useful to the to the master is not less than teaching the word faithfully, but it is more. The key is not academic qualifications or rhetorical eloquence. The key is godliness. Many of us subconsciously find that unappealing, I think, because it's harder work and longer work to clean our characters. It's less noticed and less praised, but that's the call to cut the word straight and to get our character clean. Most of us will know people who exemplify this approach to ministry, and it's wonderful to see. I think of the man who led me to Christ, the author writes, kind, patient, unresentful, gently teaching me and many others. Uh, Tim Challies, who we've been quoting lately a lot, put it like this in the article, celebrity pastor we've never known. He says, most people will forget most of your sermons, but they'll remember that when they called, you came. They'll remember that you, when you were there, when their hearts were broken, that you were there to lead them to the Lord and to speak his truth into their sorrows. That's a successful life, he writes, for that is successful ministry. The world and indeed the wider church or even your church may not notice it or thank you for it. The world will tend to applaud those whose characters are more worldly than godly or those whose teaching is more inspired by what the world says than what the scriptures say, but that will mean nothing in 200 years. And he closes this way. 
Failure is being successful at the wrong things. And success for the pastor is standing before a shepherd one day after a life of cutting the word straight and living with clean character and hearing those precious words that will sustain his joy forever. Well done, good and faithful servants. That's written by Rico Tice. It's a good word. As pastors, what is it that's going to, what is good ministry? What is success? But also in those of you who aren't pastors, what's a successful life? Big house, big bank account, successful kids, lots of acclaim. What is it? What is it that at the end causes us to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? I think that is a worthy thing to think about. What is it that will lead us to being respected and to uh, hearing well done? And Rico Tice says, handle the word well, have a high character. Uh, that those aren't the sexy things that we talk about, but those are the important things. I love that article, really well written up at the Gospel Coalition. You can find that at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. We're going to end April Fools by talking about some of the greatest all-time April Fools pranks of all time. Going to have some fun as we close out this Thursday here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, this is the last show for the week. Tomorrow is going to be a best of show as we are off for Good Friday. Uh, not only am I a pastor who um, leads a Good Friday service, but it's also just a holiday and a time for us all at the station uh, to spend time slowing down and reflecting upon uh, the death of Jesus. I mean, it's a lot of times on Easter, we skip over the crucifixion. We skip over the betrayal. We skip over the tears and the struggle. Uh, we skip over Jesus crying out in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. A lot of times it becomes easy to go right to the victory of, uh, to go right to the victory of the empty tomb. But don't do that. Don't skip over Friday, but also don't skip over Saturday. Have you ever wondered what it must have been like to be one of Jesus's disciples on Saturday? You saw him get crucified on Friday. He has yet to rise, to raise on Sunday. What must the, the, the disappointment of Sunday been? What was that heartache? So many of you know that already, right? You know the heartache and the struggle of unfulfilled promise of things that you thought were going to happen. What must they have been thinking on that day? That's so difficult to, uh, to it must have been just so difficult. So a happy Easter to you as you and your family hopefully celebrate the holiday these coming days. Well, today is April Fool's Day, uh, and I don't know if you're an April Fool's person. We talked earlier in the show how Google wasn't going to partake in April Fool's because of the struggles of all that's going on around us. But I think for that reason, the April Fool's is something to kind of revel in and laugh about and have some jokes about. We can take ourselves too seriously, can't we? Like we can always argue and just get mad about so much. Sometimes it's good to just laugh. Sometimes it's good to laugh. And so I found this at CNN and I was like, that's how we're going to end our show on April Fools. It is uh, the nine best April, nine of the best April Fools pranks of all time. It says uh, April Fools isn't what it used to be. Uh, it says on Friday, Google will announce something like Google Googly ass. Well, they're actually not doing it, as we said. And so people will do a bunch of different things. Uh, to get prepared for April Fool's, here are 10 of the best April Fool's hoaxes in history. After all, forewarned is forearmed, or as Abraham Lincoln once observed, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Number one, pasta grows on trees. 
On April 1st, 19, April 1st, 1957, the BBC show Panorama ran a segment about the Swiss spaghetti harvest, enjoying a bumper year thanks to mild weather and the elimination of the spaghetti weevil. Many credulous Britons were taken in, and why not? The story was on television, and Auntie B would never lie, would it? The story was ranked number one hoax of all time by the Museum of Hoaxes, a fine source of all things foolish. So people thought you could grow spaghetti. There was a spaghetti harvest. Number two, the fastest pitcher of all time. George Plimpton, always a wry writer, invented the tale of a New York Mets pitcher named Sid Finch for Sports Illustrated. The story about Finch, who could throw 168 miles per hour, ran in the magazine's April 1st, 1985 edition, uh, and eagle-eyed readers caught on immediately. The first letters in the words uh, of the story's secondary headline spelled out, Happy April Fool's Day. But others wondered whether the Mets had added another fireballer to their top-notch staff. Plimpton later turned the story into a novel. People actually believe there was a guy, if you've ever seen the picture of Sid Finch, uh, he's in like boots and he looks like he's out from like the fields. And he said, they said he threw 168 miles an hour. Then people believed it. Number three, redefining pie. Pie is so challenging. How can anybody work with an irrational number that goes on and on and on? Lawmakers in Alabama allegedly thought so. Passing a law in 1998 that, re- that redefined uh, 3.14159 to simply three. Though the news was a hoax from a man named Mark uh, Boslow, it became widely disseminated and believed. No wonder. In 1897, the Indiana legislature attempted to pass a bill establishing pies 3.2, among other numbers. Number four. This one's great. Left-handed toilet paper. Why should right-handers be closer to cleanliness? In 2015, Cottonelle tweeted that it was introducing left-handed toilet paper for all those Southpaws out there. Few people may have taken been taken by it, uh, taken it uh, by Cottonelle, but that wasn't the case in 1973 when Johnny Carson cracked a joke about toilet paper shortage. Worried Americans immediately stocked up. Well, you can never be sure. Number five, the Taco Liberty Bell. In this now classic 1996 prank, Taco Bell took out newspaper ads saying it had bought the Liberty Bell in an effort to help the national debt. Even some senators were taken in, and the National Park Service even held a press conference to deny the news. At noon, the fast food chain admitted the joke, along with donating $50,000 for the Bell's care. The value of a joke, of course, was priceless. I remember that when people were so mad because they were going to rename it the Taco Liberty Bell, (laughs) and people believed it. Number six, Big, Big Ben goes digital. The Brits are masters of April Fool's gags. And in uh, 1980, the BBC's overseas service said the legendary clock was getting an update. The joke did not go over well, and BBC apologized. It hasn't stopped it from popping up again in the digital era, however. So they made made people believe that Big Ben was getting a facelift and becoming a digital clock. That was the Big Ben one. Number six, uh, number seven, color TV, try nylon. In other related TV jokes, in 1962, the Swedish National Network put on a technical expert who told the public that its black and white broadcast could be made color simply by viewing through nylon stockings. Many Swedes fell for the hoax. There's no truth to the rumor, however, that some got their revenge by burning a giant goat every year. What? (laughs) So, yeah, there's pictures. People were putting nylons over their TVs and or over their heads thinking it would turn their black and white TVs into color. Alas, it did not work. Number eight, 
Goodbye Space Needle. In 1989, a Seattle comedy show went on the air and said the city Space Needle had fallen down. It even had pictures. The news was, of course, a joke, but that was of little comfort to 700 panicky uh, callers alarmed at the story. Uh, That was not true. Number nine, Google Gulp. Google, except for this year, last year, loves April Fool's Day almost as much as making doodles. In 2005, the company said that it was branching out with a new drink, Google Gulp. It would help, quote, to achieve maximum optimization of your soon-to-be-grateful cerebral cortex. Also, low in carbs. And it added to fake Google products like Google Romance, Gmail Paper, and Google Voice for Pets. But not Gmail itself, however. That's, that's real. Google Gulp. I don't remember that one. Google Gulp. And number 10, drink, uh, don't drink and surf. In 1994, PC Magazine ran a column about a bill making its way through Congress that would prohibit the use of the Internet while intoxicated. Despite the name of the contact person named uh, Lerpa Sloof, her name spelled backwards says it all, Fools uh, April, uh, many people took the story seriously. In retrospect, however, perhaps the bill, fake or not, wasn't such a bad idea. Uh, Don't drink and surf. So it's April Fool's Day. I hope that you have some laughs. There's always little things. Sometimes people go over the top. I'll never forget being in the fifth grade, my fifth grade teacher making us do an entire vocab test only to see that all the letters spelled out April Fool's Day uh, and all of us scared kids just got a good laugh out of that. So it's good. Most of all, guys, as we close out, it's just good to laugh sometimes. I know this is a serious world we live in. It feels like all the time uh, people are angry. People are struggling. People this. So every now and then it's good to laugh and it's good to laugh with each other. So I hope those brought you some joy on this April Fool's Day. Well, again, have a great Easter weekend, a good, good Friday. And then a great Easter celebration on Sunday. We'll be back with you on Monday. Uh, We hope you have a great weekend. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.